It wasn't that long ago that uh, PBS came out on Frontline with uh, a documentary called The Divided States of America. I'm sure that's a phrase that maybe you've heard uh, in the not too distant past. Uh, we've talked about it rather extensively here because it is a, a particular note, a resounding note in American culture and not just American culture but worldwide culture is that there's this distinct sense of disunity among people. There's a distinct sense of disunity among people everywhere, in friendships, in, in uh, every, everywhere you can imagine, in, in work, school, home, all that stuff. There's a distinct sense of disunity that we have. And I'll just tell you my, my point, and that is, the blood of Jesus Christ resolves that and brings peace. The blood of Jesus Christ resolves that and brings peace. So when we look at political discord in our world as believers, what we believe is this, is that the gospel, the sacrificial uh, uh, work of Jesus Christ on the cross through his blood brings us forgiveness of sins, but it also brings us together in unity. That is what we're saying. It's not anything else. It is only through Jesus Christ. It is not through best practices. It is not through just trying to get along a little bit better. It is not through tolerance. It is not through equality. It is not through any of those buzz phrases at all. It is only through Jesus Christ's work on the cross and God's blessing to us and then through that, that we have the ability to gain peace in our world. That's what we're saying. And today, there, there is a massive misunderstanding even in the local church as people consistently have problems with living in unity. The church is one of the worst places to try to find unity today sometimes, not all the time. But godly men and women understand the gospel, and as a result, they, result they realize that their differences are resolved in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what happens. And so, as we talk about this today, I, one of the things I, I, that was popping in my mind quite a bit is that um, I've mentioned this before, but I have many friends who are lead pastors. I'm a part of a network called... Uh, Acts 29, we are a part of a, a network, you're, at, you're in an Acts 29 church, but I have many friends who are lead pastors of churches, and there has been tremendous disunity in their, in their church in regards to politics and everything else. We'll see what's going on here. In regards to politics and everything else, there is this tremendous disunity that has happened, tremendous fighting. We have not experienced that, that we know of. I don't know of... of of that really happening within the context of, of this church, of Outward Church, either in this location or in Silverton. And so I think it's a great time to talk about it because I'm not calling anybody out, per se, unless the Lord convicts you of some personal feeling that you have. People always find ways to divide themselves into classes, categories, and allegiances. People always find ways to do that. That is the way that, that is the way of our world. That's the way that things go. 
many people have had solutions for this. We can ask the question like, where, how, do, how can we all come together? How do we have unity? John Lennon wrote a song, a very famous song um, called Imagine. I know that you've heard it before. I'm, I think this is played every uh, New Year's Eve as well. I'm not sure. But uh, let me just read the words to you here for just a second, just to remind you of what that song says. It's written in 1971. And he says, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Ah. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember that part of the song. Ah, something like that. Uh, imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. John Lennon's solution to the problem is that take away all of the distinctions. Take away the idea of heaven or hell. Take, the idea, take, take away uh, all of the institutions. Take away the countries. Take away uh, everything. Take away possessions. And we should all just get along because you got rid of all of those institutions, all of those functions, all of those places, the institution of religion, the institution of all of this. What's interesting about that and problematic is that he's actually describing heaven or the kingdom of God in its fullness, is that he will be our God and we will be his people. There will be no question about it. Everything is owned by him. Everything is in him and we are in him and he is in us. He's, he's describing heaven and he doesn't even realize it. Like there's something in us that says there's a possibility, there's a place that we could go, there's, there's, this, there's this time, there's this moment that we could potentially get to where things would get better. And that was written in 1971, and things have just gotten better since then, right? <laughs> it's just, it just keeps getting better and better and better, all because of John Lennon's song. It doesn't. It doesn't. Why is that? Well, look at this first verse here. It says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. We'll stop right there. What, 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 <laughs> how is, Pastor Matt, tell me how this is really helping how is this really helping? The Apostle Paul is telling us something. Here's the problem. Before you can try to create unity, you have to find the cause of the trouble. Before you can get to unity, before you can get to a place of being unified in your marriage, in your work, in your church, in any place you find yourselves, before you can try to find unity, you have to find the cause of the trouble. The, the problem is that many of us are trying to rush toward treatment without diagnosis. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that. 
try to rush to treatment. Let's just treat, treat the problem. If we get rid of the organizations, then, then everything will be fine, right? No, what this says right here is it says that God has these special people. These special people had this amazing sign of what God was doing in them, what God was doing in them in, internally. That sign, as weird as it is, as weird as it sounds, was circumcision. That was God's sign for God's people. And these people turned it into a racial slur. They turned it into a racial slur. They turned it into something that, that said, you know what, we have an advantage over you. Man will take any advantage. And now, man will take any disadvantage. We will take any type of disadvantage. We'll elevate that and say, see, I am the most disadvantaged. No, I'm the most disadvantaged. I mean, you think about that. Uh, you know, uh, racial uh, minorities and things like that who talk about their disadvantage. And we could talk about that. And then you have straight white men who are saying, no, I'm disadvantaged now. You see how that works? We're working towards, towards saying, I'm the one that's most disadvantaged. And in and through that, I get an advantage. But we'll take any advantage we can get. We'll take something really good and great, like a gift from God, like say in sports. I'm really aware of sports these days because my kids are all in sports and they, they want to be on this team or they want to be on, on that team. They want to be first string. They don't want to be third string or second string. But we always take an advantage of, of saying, see, I'm first string. I'm first string. We can always look down on other people. We can always take our socioeconomic status and we can say, see, I have made something of myself. We can always take our job, whether we're white collar or blue collar, and we can take that as an advantage. We can take our gender and we, we can make fun of the other gender or genders. We can try to put ourselves above other people. We can say we're the most disadvantaged. We can say we're the most advantaged. But somehow we're trying to make something of ourselves. We're boasting in something. We're boasting in something. And that's what God's people were doing. The Apostle Paul says, remember that at one time, you Gentiles, this word Gentile means, uh, means nations. The word is ethnos. It's where we no doubt get our word ethnic. It means nations. It means all of the other nations that are not Israel. It means, therefore, remember at one time, you people who were not Israel, who were not included, that you were called the uncircumcision. You were called dogs. You were put down. They would not associate with you. They put up a massive wall between you and them at the temple. There was no room for you. There was no place for you. And likewise, you called them the circumcision. The Apostle Paul is pointing out something, and he's saying, there's something that man does. There's something that humanity does, that we take an advantage, that we take a gift, that we take power, position, and we create an us-them scenario. It doesn't matter, matter if it's economic, racial, gender, sexuality. Even pastors do this. We take something that God has done, we, that, that God has blessed us with. 
I mean, I'm, I'm including myself in this for good reason. But we take something where God is blessed, the number of people that attend our church, the number of staff that we have, the size of our budget, the size of our church, either big or small. Oh, we're, we're big. God's really doing an amazing thing, man. He's just so, so great. You know what? We're pretty good because we're staying small. We just want to stay small. Really? Uh, <laughs> I mean, that, but, but people boast in it. We find a way to boast in it. It's an us-them scenario. See, we are better than them. Where's the division coming from? Many times we take a good gift from God and we turn it into a position of power, a position of boasting, and we say, see, I'm better than most. That's what we do with it. And every single one of us is guilty of it. Every single one of us is guilty of it. And it essentially comes from this problem of basically saying, I didn't do anything. It's not my fault. They're the ones that are trying to do this. We're the ones that are trying to correct that. You see it in your marriage. When you find yourself in constant friction and no one takes responsibility for their own stuff. It's always what that person did to me. You see it in your relationships. You see it in, obviously, in politics. You see it in your work. And God has something better for us. See, the whole first, first part of chapter two in Ephesians is really about us individually. Remember, he says, he begins that passage, that, the beginning of that chapter, or that section of scripture, with, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then he goes all the way to for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is about us individually. And now he's turning to us collectively as a community. God did not save you so that you could just be an individual and just not like people and not, and not come together. God saved you so that you could be a part of a people that are a shining city on a hill. God saved each and every one of you who is saved in this room so that you would be a shining example of what unity is in the context of the local church so that people may look and see and just go, I don't even understand how the president or CEO of a corporation or a, a business owner can hang out with a guy that works at whatever, Pizza Hut. I don't know how that happens. I don't know how black and white get together. I don't know how these, these genders honor one another so well. What is it about their love? Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. That love doesn't happen without there being an immense amount of unity that, ha that has pervaded this church. That's, that's, that's what it looks like. And so I just, I just want to reach out ahead of us here and just say that there will be days of disunity ahead of us. I told my staff this this last Christmas. I told the staff, listen, I've never felt more love and unity amongst my staff, but it will not always be that way. It's been easy to some degree up until this point. I don't know why, but God has just like blessed us with this, but it will not always be that way. It will not always feel that way at Outward Church. 
And some of us, in fact, all of us, to one degree or another, are going to take a position. We're going to take a, a, we're going to get passionate about something. We really should be doing this, or we should really not be doing that, or we should really be supporting this, or we should really not be supporting that. Or I would really like the volume to be turned down. Or I would like it to be turned up. I can't imagine you saying that, but. <laughs> but it won't always be like that. And we'll come to a point where we'll need to say, has the blood of Christ washed over our relationships in such a way that it resolves these things? And I'll tell you why in just a few moments here. Verse 12 says, remember that you were at that time separate, or separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What is the modern man or modern woman who has no relationship with Christ? They are separated from Christ. That may not sound like a big deal to you, but when you, when you realize that if, if God is creator and sustainer of all things, and that you were designed to have relationship with this God, like you were actually designed to be in relationship with this God, it's, it's very easy to see it. Look, at you were designed to have relationship with your parents. But when you have broken relationship with your, with your parents, when you don't know them, or when the, a dad is not home, or when a mom is not home, and they're absent, it creates dysfunction. You were designed to be in relationship with your father through Jesus Christ. But what this is saying is remember that at that time, you were separated from Christ. You did not have relationship with him. Like there's this separate nature of it. And look at what he says. He said it twice now. Remember. Remember the position that you were in. Remember the place that you were in. Remember the, the fact that you are dislocated from this God who, has, who created you. Remember that. And do, do we remember that? This letter is as much to you as it is to uh, the church in Ephesus as well as all the other churches that it was circulated to. And every church that it's been to uh, since that day. Like this, this matters to us. You have, you and me have to remember that we were separated from Christ. Now, the question is, does that matter to you? Paul says it should matter. It should, it should evoke something in you. Like remember that moment of separation. Remember that, that time Remember that season of life. Remember where you were and what you were involved in. Maybe you were born into a Christian family. The Apostle Paul wants you to remember the fact that there was separation from Christ prior to coming to faith and that this is meaningful. It has a massive point. He says, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You're, you're alienated from, from God's special people. God's special people that he called through Abram, later to become Abraham. He, they, were, they were alienated from all of the promises that God had bestowed on these people. 
All, all of the promises of, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to care for you. Follow my ways. Do what's right. Live in righteousness and holiness like I am. And when you screw up, go back to, go back to God and confess and sacrifice in order to be atoned for. But these people, these Gentiles of the nations, they did not have that. They did not have any of that connection. They didn't have, they were separated from Christ. They were separated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were separated from God's people. They were separated from all of the, the covenants of promise. And as a result, what was happening was this, that there's no hope and without God. There's nothing that describes our world today more than that. No hope and without God. There is no hope in our world. There will be no hope in our world if you just get rid of institutions. Do you see what's happening today? The institution is being slashed in every way. Organizations are being challenged and torn down. Government is literally being overwhelmed by people who want to tear apart government. The world is without hope. It is without God. We think, oh, it's that institution. It's that group of people. It's, they're the problem over there. It's the way that they vote. It's the things that they do. It's the things that they say. If they would just stop that, then everything would be fine. It causes no hope. There is no hope in our world outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As believers in Jesus Christ, do you believe that? Do you believe that the gospel is the hope for your messed up family? For your messed up marriage? For our messed up world? Thank you, sir. Do you believe that that's what it is? Do you know why we come together every Sunday? And why you should be here? Not as a matter of like legalism, but it's simply that I have to be reminded. You have to be reminded that everything out there that I've inundated myself with through my cell phone, through movies, through the media, through all of the discipleship, the non-discipleship that I have experienced out there, all of that has to be counteracted with just like an hour and a half at least with God's people. It's, I mean, it's, it's basically life support. It's because I have to come in here and understand, listen, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That's what, that's, that's what we're telling you. That's what I'm telling you. That's what the scriptures are telling you. That out there is no hope. But as long as you believe that your hope is found, and nothing less but in your work, in your position, in your authority, as long as you believe that your hope, that your God is your advantage in this society. As long as you believe something like that, you will be boasting in that. You will boast in that and you will not boast 
in Christ. And many people woke up after the, the COVID deluge and said, you know what? Things seem okay with me being into my own thing. And so I'm just going to keep doing that. That's part of what happened. This has something else for you. And I, and I, and it, but, but are things getting better? No, no, they're not. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, remember in, the, in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, he describes our position. You are dead in your transgressions and sins. All of us, like, like the rest of mankind, were disobedient. Like it just sounds terrible. It's just lash after lash after lash. And then it says, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you've been saved. Like that's like this amazing wake up moment for us individually. Now here, verses 11 through 22, we're doing 11 through 13 today. But in verses 11 through 22, there's a great transition. The, a, a blessed but as uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, which it sounds so hilarious when he says that. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus, you, not, not just you or you or you, but you who once were far off, that we are far off the mark, that we're far away, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Now, how in the world does that happen? How does the blood of Christ, what does that even mean? Well, it's in reference to the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. That sacrificial death says this, I am so into my own thing I have been boasting in my own thing so much, in my advantages or my disadvantages today, as odd as that is. I've been boasting so much in that, and that's who I was, that's what I did, that's what I was like, that's, that's, that's what I was doing. I was so into that, that the Son of God had to die for me. We were so self focused. We were so self-interested. We were so into everything that we can do that the Son of God had to die. That's how bad it was. Like somebody had to be put to death, and they were put to death. That's how bad. The blood acknowledges something which is quite important. And that is, I was so lost. We were so lost. We were so into ourselves. I'm such a sinner that he had to die for me. That's, that's where I am. It begins with a, a full repentance. It begins with the acknowledgement of they're not the problem. 
I'm the problem. That institution isn't the problem in our world today. I'm the biggest problem in our world today. It's not the Republicans that are the problem. It's me. It's not the Democrats. It's me. It's not anybody. I, I was enough to put the Son of God to death. I was enough. What it means is this, is that once you understand that God had to die, that his blood had to be shed for you, you now have this immense sense of humility. There should be a note, not, not just a note, but this resounding of humility in my life that I am the biggest problem in my marriage. My wife is going to record that and play that back to me in a meme. I am the biggest problem in, in my marriage. There's nobody else that causes problems in my marriage like I do. I am... <laughs> you know, I, sometimes I want people to give feedback. But sometimes that's only some people, right? Not my wife in the back. But that was my wife saying amen. I am the biggest problem in my marriage. Are you having marital problems? You having arguments? You having fights? The gospel says this. There's nobody more at fault than you for your problems in your marriage. The gospel says there's, there's nothing to boast in other than the cross, the blood, the gospel. Did you see what John Lennon was saying? It'd be nice if we just like get rid of all of these tiers of importance, countries, religions, all of these organizations, and it would just be a level playing field. You know what? It's the only time I'm gonna say this. John Lennon's right. It would be really nice. And do you know what happened? You know, you know how that happens? It's through the blood of Jesus Christ. You've, have you ever heard the statement at the foot of the cross? It's, it's, it's all level. There is no hierarchy down there. Every single one of us stands at the foot of the cross in the same position, needing the grace of God. Every single one of us. Do you know how we resolve conflicts in the church? When we have conflict, we come to the table saying, I'm the biggest problem in this. Let me clarify something real quick. A caveat, if you will. There are some problems with the church that are just the church's problems. The Southern Baptist Convention covering up uh, sexual abuse, many churches, the Catholic Church, other, other churches unaffiliated, the church I grew up in, that probably, if you grew up in church, it's probably happened in your church. That that's not your fault. But let's just talk about regular conflict, not abuse, okay? All of us have to acknowledge, I'm the biggest problem. And what it is, is it's, it's the admission of a death, of the necessity of death. It essentially says this, by admitting fault, 
That is a death in and of itself. See, Jesus is the only one who truly did not do anything. He, like, in the middle of your marriage, in, in the middle of a, uh, of a discussion, in the, mid, in the middle of a, an argument with your roommates, in the middle of uh, an argument with a, uh, a coworker or, or anybody like that, any kind of family, any, any type of relational, any type of political, any, anything like that, in the middle of that, we, we have to acknowledge, hey, I'm the one at fault. Here's the thing. Jesus is the only one that could stand in that relational place and he could say, I really did not do anything. And yet I'll receive it as though I did. Jesus really did live a perfect life. And yet he receives all of your insults, all of my insults, all of my all of my sin, all of my relational discord, he receives all of that and he takes it on as his, as his own. So I can stand in my marriage and I can say, I didn't do anything to cause this problem. But the truth is, I'm the biggest problem in this marriage, but Jesus is my example and his blood poured out for me shows, number one, I'm a sinner in need of grace. But number two, it also shows this that he loves me immensely. And you know what happens when you see that you are loved? If you look at 1 John 4, 16 and 17, don't turn there. 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, it says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. So that's what a Christian is, is someone who has come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us. How is love perfected with us? How do we go from disunity to unity? By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Did you see what that said? What happens is, is this, is that when you, when you come to God, and there's no equivocation, there's, there's no like, no, but, no, but I'm actually okay because I, I just decided that that's okay. There's no equivocation, like, I'm kind of bad, I've done some bad things, I'm not the worst person. No, no, like, me, I, we put Jesus on the cross. I come to him, and I tell him that, and I say, no, it's, it's whatever you say, God, it's what, whatever you decide, you're God, I'm man, I'm, the, I'm created, you're the uncreated one, like, that's, that's who you are. This is who I am. I need grace. And then God gives that grace to you. Not because you came to him, but because you've been brought near. It wasn't even your choice. He brought you near and he lavishes his love on you. Like enormously lavishes his love on you. And he says, you are my child. You're a part of my family. Here's the best robe. Here's a ring for your finger. Kill the fatted calf. You're mine, and I love you this much. And do you know what that says to us? It, something clicks in our brain that says, 
I have confidence for the day of judgment. Do you know what's going on in our world? Do you know what the disunity is? It's the constant threat of judgment. That's what the scriptures say. It is the constant threat of judgment. And our efforts at putting ourselves up here, whoo, boom, wow. Everyone awake now. That was judgment, right? Yeah, I planned that, planned that. We got some, got some issues going on with our mics here these days, but we'll get it handled. Our efforts to put ourselves up here, to take our advantage, is to somehow prove I am worthy. I am enough. I don't deserve judgment. You deserve judgment. I don't deserve judgment. Romans 1 talks about how all of us know God. We know who he is and we just put him out of our mind. We act like he's not there. We know that there's impending judgment. And there's this fear, there's this quaking that's happening in our soul. And our world is becoming more and more scared as it goes, no, this is the way. No, that's the way. No, this is the way. It's, it, it has to be this. It has to be that. And it's quaking because it's going, all of my efforts are failing. All of the organizations are going away. And jo what John and Lennon said, it's going that direction. And it is not getting better. And judgment is impending. And this says, when you know that the blood of Jesus Christ has been shed for you in spite of your sin. And you know that in, in, in every situation that I am the one that's most at fault. And yet you can say with pure confidence, I'm loved. I will not see judgment. There is a real judgment day. You live forever. You will be judged. You and I will be judged. And what this is saying is it's saying this. You have confidence for the day of judgment. And what happens is this. When you know that you are loved beyond anything that is comparable, that you will not experience judgment, the judgment of God, now you don't have to be so judgmental. When you know that you're deeply loved, then you can love other people. When you know that you're deeply loved, you don't have to do the things that you believe that you must do in order to be loved. You're just loved. When you know that you're loved like that, through the blood of Christ, that you've been brought near through no good works of your own, all of a sudden, everything changes. And now you go from a community that is built on disunity, disloyalty, diseverything. And now we have a pocket of the kingdom of God where he is our God and we are his people. And our hope is not found in the political discourse of our day or what's happening in whatever institution. Our hope is found in the blood of Jesus Christ alone because it tells me I'm a sinner, but it says I'm deeply loved. And as a result, I love other people. Do you know why? Because God loves other people. Just straight up. God loves the, the people that disagree with him. 
he causes his sun to shine on the evil and the good. God loves people that hate him. God loves people that despise him. God loves people that disagree with our politics. God loves people that are after Christians. God loves people that are just kind of so-so and they're like, I don't really know where I stand. God loves people that boast in their goodness. And such were some of you. Separated, alienated, dislocated, without hope and without God. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ. 